0: To succeed as a corporation you need to realize that there's now more power on the outside and you need to redeploy your organization so as to be able to harness that power from the outside which basically means inviting individuals to lend their power to you so that you can convert that power into whatever you want to achieve
1: This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. In these conversations, we make sense of what's next. Join me, my co-hosts, and my guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world.
2: Hello, listeners, Tina Heikele here, co-host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast with Simone Cicero. Today, we're speaking to Nicolas Collin co-founder and director of The Family, a pan-European investment firm founded in 2013 and headquartered in London. Nicolas publishes an extremely valuable newsletter, European Straits, about entrepreneurship, finance, strategy, and policy with a European perspective. He's also the author of three books, one of which is Hedge, A Greatest Safety Net for the Entrepreneurial Age. Check out the show notes for all these references. In this conversation, we try to unpack why Nicholas thinks that the current crisis is going to accelerate the transition to what he recently called a more mature entrepreneurial economy and what he means with the entrepreneurial age, a concept he uses to describe a network computing-powered world where individuals or users are more important than having fixed assets on a balance sheet. We also talk about the balance between building organization based on attracting outsiders and the need to be resilient to sudden drops in users, which some tech companies seem to get wrong. If you're into exploring the evolution of entrepreneurship in its wider socio-economic and geopolitical context, you'll surely enjoy this conversation. Enjoy the episode.
1: Hello, everyone. So we are here today, uh, Simone, your usual host, and uh, my usual co-host, Stina.
2: Hi, really glad to be here today.
1: And today with us, we have uh, Nicola Collin. Hi, this is Nicola. So Nicola uh, we are so enthusiastic to have you here today to uh, explore uh, the topic of entrepreneurship in in a changing world I would say in a changing society and uh, uh, always from our perspective of uh, uh, you know exploring um, scalable uh, organizations and, and large-scale transformations and uh, uh, I would like I would like to start the conversation from one of your uh, statements that recently really, uh hit my attention I was listening to your amazing podcast with uh, our friends at Aperture uh, and um, you I remember you said something like I uh, when sp- speaking about the let's say the impacts of coronavirus uh, epidemic but more in general about uh, the changes and the risks that we are now living through you said uh, this crisis is going to accelerate the transition to a more mature entrepreneurial economy and I'm really, really looking forward to unpack uh, this uh, sentence with you uh, today. So where, do, where should we start?
0: Well, maybe it's uh, it came from the surprise that many uh, of us who work in the tech world uh, have um, felt observing all the people reacting to the crisis triggered by the pandemic. For us, uh, the fact that you shop online and have your food delivered, uh, the fact that uh, working remotely is part of the normal working life. So this is all normal, but for many people, the the pandemic has forced them to switch their cons- their habits as workers, as consumers uh they've they've left the workplace the the office to work from home they they've renounced shop, uh, going to shopping malls to order food uh, online and so and for for the majority of people it's been a radical change from what was previously their way of life and so the the contrast between uh the feeling of continuity that we in the tech world are Uh, feeling at the moment and and the impression of a radical change that many other people are are feeling is what led me to realize that well what what looks like radical change for many people is only an acceleration of pre-existing change for people who were already paying attention
1: and uh, and um, do you so, so I was really thrilled by your reference to entrepreneurship. So, um, for sure, I, I totally, um, I totally resonate with you when you say, from the consumer's perspective, from the let's say the the the, the perspective of uh, changing habits. Um, to some extent, it's real. Uh, we didn't really, for us, you know, for many of us, like, for example, myself, I'm working from home since now, uh, you know, uh, so many, so many months, so many years, and uh, I didn't really change. But, uh, from the perspective of entrepreneurship, you, you really mentioned this idea that, uh, Uh, We got to move into a a more mature entrepreneurial economy. And uh, so, so what does it mean from the perspective, from the other side of the picture, not from the consumer side, but from the, let's say, from the, from the perspective of those that are creating value in society? Uh, What were you referring to?
0: Yes. So, uh, I, I use this concept of the entrepreneurial age, which I borrowed from. Um, uh, Babak Nevi, who's an investor based in Silicon Valley and one of, one of the co-founders of Angel List. Uh, and the entrepreneurial age, I think is a term or an expression that makes it easy to describe everything that's going on at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I wrote this book like two years ago called Hedge, in which I was building on Carlo Taperez's idea of the fifth technological revolution. And you might be familiar with Carlota's framework, but basically she she reflects on 250 years of economic history and divides the period from the Industrial Revolution to today into five consecutive uh, technological revolutions, each leading to installing a new age, which encompasses a new way of life, a new approach to production, to consumption, to work. Uh, and she gives a name to each of these ages so the first is well the industrial revolution but then comes the age of railways uh, um then comes the age of steel and heavy engineering then comes the age of uh, the automobile and mass production that's the 20th century and then we're entering the fifth age in Carlotas framework but she doesn't She, she doesn't offer a name for, for that fifth age. And so I've been reflecting on, you know, finding two words that best describe what's going on in the new digital age in, in the world of, in today's world. And I was using a lot this expression of the age of computing and networks, because I think computing on one side and networks on the other side are, um, are the two major, um, Uh, technological bricks that explain the radical change that we're experiencing in the economy at the moment. Uh, But when you write a book or articles about that topic, and you you end up writing the age of computing and networks uh, several times a page, uh, it it starts to be a bit long and and a bit boring. So I, I was on the hunt for shorter expression to describe the new age. And I decided to settle on, on this idea of the entrepreneurial age uh, rooted in that article published in 2013 by uh, by Nivi. And um, the idea behind the entrepreneurial age is that because it's an economy that's uh, supported by computing and networks. So on one hand, you there's this idea that there's more and more computing power disseminated uh spread into the society like more and more individuals are empowered because they own computing devices such as computers laptops smartphones uh, any other device and those people are connected by networks so it's either physical networks like telecommunication networks or it's social networks like we all use the same applications which uh, make it easy for for us to interact Uh, And what's interesting with this is that um, it explains the fact that entrepreneurs are taking charge. Because if the economy is driven by billions of individuals that are uh, empowered by computing and connected to one another thanks to networks, uh, it's an economy in which um, that multitude of individuals has more power than organizations. That's one thing, and the other it's because it's uh, it's all about networks. Networks come with radical instability, and so you you have to be prepared in a more in an economy driven by networks to go through many ups and downs. Uh, and to renounce stability forever, basically, uh, everything becomes radically uh uncertain uh, and and there's widespread instability uh, across markets, industries, geographies, and so on and And because of the radical uncertainty uncertainty and because of the widespread instability that that characterize an economy driven by computing and networks. The only way to survive and to thrive in this economy is to become more entrepreneurial. That is, you need to be uh, paying a lot of attention to what individuals need. You need to be ready for uh, uh, experimenting at a very fast pace. You need to be ready to fail many times before you finally succeed. Uh, And so entrepreneurs are not only the vanguard during the revolution, they also the perennial elite in this this new world that I think we have to uh, recognize as such. Um, And and this is why I I find that the the idea of the entrepreneurial age fits uh, the reality of what we're witnessing so well.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, where are these instabilities coming from? It seems like you relate uh, uh, instabilities to uh, the properties uh, of uh, um, complex systems that are heavily internet-working. No? So, so there is a technological uh, route to the instabilities you are talking about. Uh, but um, can, can you explain, maybe, can you expand a little bit better this uh, uh, radical and and continuous uncertainty and instability that I, I completely share with you uh, in terms of understanding. But can you unpack it a little bit? Why do you see this happening?
0: So um, I, I think many people are familiar with the, this idea of network effects, which uh, uh, fueling uh, what economists called increasing returns to scale, which means that, uh, well, the, the uh, the, the more growth you generate, the, the faster the growth. And, and, and in markets ruled by increasing returns to scale, you usually end up with one or two companies dominating the market because they've been racing ahead quite early and racing ahead has made it possible for them to unlock, uh, the potential for accelerated growth while others, other firms are lagging behind. So. We've been familiar with this idea of increasing returns to scale fueled by network effects for longer than we had the internet. But before the internet, uh, those network effects existed only in sectors uh, which were all about uh, network infrastructures. So that was typically telecommunications, but also uh, electricity, um or railways for instance and and because network effects tended to favor the 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 company that was operating the largest network well it it usually ended up with one company dominating the entire market which in turn called for the government to uh, regulate that industry to prevent that dominant company from becoming a predator predator for um, customers. So, but at the time, and the major difference between then and now was, is that back then the network effects were uh, related or driven by a physical infrastructure. And uh, the thing with a physical infrastructure that you operate as a company is that you own this infrastructure uh, it's uh, it appears on your balance sheet. there's a price attached to it and if someone wants to take that infrastructure from you, it, uh, either it's another company that has to pay the price or it's the government that comes with the power of uh, you know a regulator. but, uh, but, but those are exceptions and and, and and the rule of the game is that you own the infrastructure and so you benefit, you you reap all the benefits from the network effects uh, driven by the infrastructure. Today, uh, I mentioned the fact that networks have been shifting from the physical layer to the social layer, which means that the the largest and the most powerful networks in the economy today, uh, uh, thanks to the internet, are networks formed by individuals using the same application. Uh And so the nodes in the network are the individu- individuals rather than the the components of the infrastructure, like, like was the case, like, well, to make it short, it's not the train stations anymore, it's the individuals now. And so, and the difference between train stations or, uh you, you know, nodes in a telecommunication network or uh nuclear par- power plants and uh, individuals is that you can own the former as a company. It's on your balance sheet, and no one can take it from you. Whereas individuals, you can't own individuals. They're users. And as users, they're free to come and go. And if they're bored by your application, they'll leave in an instant and and will go and use another application that serves them better, that does the job better. And so, uh, because you don't own those individuals, well, you can't, you cannot count on the network effects over the long term. You need to make everything you can to retain those individuals, to retain your users so that they can keep on feuding those network effects that, uh, that you can then convert into profits. And how do you serve individuals? Well, you serve them by Uh, You know, uh, a large number of individuals connected through a network, uh, it's a very sensitive group. Like one day, one of them can wake up and decide that they don't like your product anymore. And if they start talking about their feelings about your product to other individuals around them, that can spread through the network quite fast. And you can lose them all in an instant. And so how do you prevent that? You need to innovate. You need to improve the quality of the product. You need to bring the price, uh, lower. You need to make your deliveries faster and so on and so on. And so in other words, in other words, you need to remain as entrepreneurial as possible, even though you're operating, uh, um, your business at a very large scale.
2: Ah oh, thank you for for that. I wanted to come back to one point that you made in your last uh, newsletter, also linked to this uh, because indeed you you pointed out also that uh, so so what you're saying is that we need to you know cater for these users and the individuals. Um, but then you also uh, raised the point of this geopolitical scale. So how do you see that in in the risk landscape uh, nowadays? so, while we have global businesses that cater for their users in sort of virtual virtual space, why is it important then to also take into account the geopolitical uh, climate and the local culture in the countries where you where you try to operate?
0: So I think it's uh, it's very important for uh, various reasons. Uh, one reason is that um, so six years ago it seems like a very long time ago, but Uber was still operating in China and at that time we all had the impression that Uber was going to become to be to mobility what Google was to search that is the global giant that dominates the market and evicts every other challenger and makes it impossible to compete because of the the quality of their value proposition and, and, and uh, well, the attractiveness of their value proposition and, and the power of their network effects. Um, the f- two years after that, uh, Uber was kicked out of China. They were bought out by Didi, uh, which is the local champion, uh, in mobility in China. Then they were kicked out of Southeast Asia. They had, they sold their entire operation to Grab. And then they started to be uh, confronted with very tough competition on markets as diverse as Latin America, Russia, and more and more, uh, Europe, and even at home with the revival of Lyft, uh, uh, starting in 2017. And so from, 2014, six years ago to today, we've been realizing that uh, it's not because you're a tech company that you will own the entire market at a global scale. There are more and more sectors in which uh, the need to invest in tangible assets or the need to comply with local regulations will, will will make it much harder for a company to 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 take most of the market uh, and will force even the strongest companies to make room for competition for competitors. Uh, So so I think now the lesson has been drawn by people building tech companies. They realize that every country is different because the more you serve well, consumers are different because they belong to a different culture. They speak a different language. The regulatory landscape is different because every country has their own approach to regulating industries such as financial services healthcare mobility uh, education and many others and and suddenly i think we've been realizing we've all been realizing that uh, there's there's no such thing as um global tech company uh, except for a few exceptions like google in search maybe netflix in entertainment uh and and a few others but uh, even they're very large and present in on uh, in many geographies those companies are not operating in china anyway so that's a big chunk of the global market that uh, eludes them so what i think the lesson here is is that we've we've we we've lived with an illusion that digital markets will be global uh will always be global and now we're realizing that those markets are regional, regi- regional or even national uh and um and i think we we we're we are witnessing the beginning of companies adapting their strategy to this new understanding of what it's about to compete uh, across several geographies uh, in the digital economy. So, um, sorry, that's a long answer, but uh, um, I think it will become even more difficult in the future to, to expand uh, your business across borders for many reasons first because the world is fragmenting less and there are less and less uh, trade agreements that are negotiated between countries which makes it more difficult for companies to expand their business across borders including for digital uh, businesses Um, the european union is fragmenting with the uk soon leaving I, i guess Uh, the the european union so that will come with more regulatory uh, with more fragmentation from a regulatory perspective and uh, more difficulties for business to expand across europe especially if they're headquartered in london Uh, and then um, uh, another thing is that the pandemic leads to governments becoming stronger because Confronted with the pandemic, we all turn to our governments to ask for help, to, command, to, to because we expect support from them. We expect them to take charge in fighting the pandemic. And I think after the crisis, when, when uh, the pandemic is finally um, over and the economy starts to recover, we'll end up with governments that have become stronger and more present in the economy because of the pandemic and those governments will have many ideas when it comes to regulating different industries in which tech companies are uh, uh are trying to enter and that will lead to even more fragmentation from a regulatory perspective and so i think um uh, well tech leaders need to be prepared to reflect on that uh we uh, we we're past the time when it was possible to expect that Your initial success on the U.S. market was enough to provide you with the capital, credibility, velocity to expand uh, in Western Europe. Now it's two very different games. And um, one scenario is that U.S. companies will focus on the U.S. market, and that will make more room for European companies emerging in Europe to serve the European markets.
1: (laughs) So I want to unpack this in a couple of points that I want to share with you as a further uh, step for the conversation. And uh, so, so you, you spoke about a lot about tech companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, uh, my understanding is uh, that, uh, to some extent, the technology and organizing at the moment, and this is also a premise of our work, I believe, with platform thinking, it cannot be uh, untangled anymore. So when you talk about technology, essentially, and when you talk about organization, you are talking about the same thing. So, so you know, organizing is a technique and technologies are techniques. And to some extent, from the, from the perspective of human uh, development, we are talking about the same thing. So that's the first point I would like to share with you and see what you think. And secondly, uh, the point that you raised about uh, regionalization and uh, nationalization in general, I, I was listening to this podcast with, uh, um, uh, with uh, Balaji uh, Srinivasan a few days ago and... Uh, uh, and this is a point that also came from another guest that we had on the podcast before John Robb. Uh, so the question is that we are seeing these, uh, Polarization between what uh, Srinivasan calls uh, national nationalism versus uh, rationalism, and uh, to some extent, uh, this uh, re-regionalization of the economy is probably uh, a consequence of uh, um, you know, and, and this is a point that I'm borrowing from another guest that came to our podcast a few days ago, Joe Norman, is that as risk grows. Um, to some extent, to, to reduce uh, the impact of this asymmetric risk that we are uh, seeing, uh, we need to re-regionalize our economies because this is, a, in a way, uh, deflates these risks. So, you, you know, you reduce the connectivity of the economy. You, you started by, by talking about this session, you know, the, the, the new risk generated by network economies. And so these, uh, to some extent, deflate the pressure, the risk pressure that your economy uh, leaves. Of course, uh, this comes with uh, all sorts of side consequences. And uh, for sure, one of that is uh, probably the fact that, I don't know, uh, just to be clear, uh, if you move away from uh, just-in-time economies because your supply chains need to be shortened, net uh, then you need to invest some of your money and energy, maybe not in efficiencies, but in redundancies. So uh, maybe your experienced economy gets a hit. So all this narrative of uh, you know uh, experiences uh, we need to be uh, recast into a narrative of uh, healthcare, for example, no, with with the pandemic. So to some extent, and and, and a, su- a summary, you know, my question is, um, to what extent what we are witnessing is uh, the start of uh, uh, when you say more mature uh, economy uh, of entrepreneurship. Uh, is it possibly something that starts to be a little bit post-modern or, or meta-modern, as somebody calls it? But uh, to some extent, are we overcoming this modernity and progress narrative to enter a new age? So, um,
0: well, l- like many people, I use the term tech company because it's a convenient term to describe every company that's somehow pulling the lever of using the internet to make things better differently uh faster or cheaper uh whatever and um but tech companies come in different flavors if you if you'd like the the way i see it i i, I still like to reason uh, uh, about the economy in terms of industries for me uh industries exist to serve uh, certain markets and to do certain jobs uh, for which uh, consumers hire companies uh, and um, a, and most of the transition to the entrepreneurial ha- age happens at the level of industries which means that uh, after the transition is over after we finally um, reach the end of this paradigm shift, uh, the same industries will probably exist, but they will be very different in terms of who dominates the industry, what link in the value chain dominates the industry, and how the value is distributed along the value chain uh, as a consequence. Um, the thing is that the the transition happens rather differently from one industry to another. So there are differences in terms of pace, for instance, because there are industries that are easy uh, to digest for software, like uh, with this idea of software eating the world, where uh, uh, it's easier to eat the music industry, for instance, than it is to to eat the real estate industry. Uh, hence WeWork, like WeWork uh, is obvious, was obviously hard to build as opposed to uh, m- uh, making the music industry more digital. Um, so there's a difference in terms of pace, but then there will be a difference in the end in terms of returns on equity, that is uh, the, the returns that investors and entrepreneurs will be able to expect from building companies in a given industry depend on things such as uh, what's the importance of tangible assets uh, and what's the complexity of the regulation that I have to comply with. Uh, and so, well, basically, the rule of thumb is that the more tangible assets you need to. To, to do the job, and the more regulations you have to comply with to do the job, the lesser the returns uh, you can expect, and um, and so that explains uh, I think the fact that it it will st- w- we can still talk about tech companies, but a tech company in real estate will be actually very different from a tech company in in, the, in music, or. Uh, advertising because the presence of digital uh, of tangible assets in real estate and the fact that it's a highly fragmented and regulated market will make it more difficult for those companies to generate returns and so uh, they they won't be able to count on those exponential growth curves uh, comparable to those uh, once uh, enjoyed by the likes of Google or Facebook so that's one difference it will be all tech companies, but with very different profiles uh, when it comes to returns. And just like in the 20th century, every industry was dominated by companies uh, applying the recipe of mass production, but it worked more or less well, depending on the industry. It worked perfectly for building cars. It worked uh, less well for you know, operating restaurants, for instance. Because restaurants are hard to manage scientifically, basically. That's, that's the thing. So, uh, that's to, to answer the, the question on tech companies. As for the supply chains and, um, you know, make, making them shorter, uh, because the economy is fragmenting. Well, it's true that if, your supply chain is not connected to the rest of the world then you're less exposed to the ups and downs that can be triggered elsewhere in the world with uh, propagation through the network um, an interesting comparable for that is the financial services industry it's precisely because finance became the first networked industry that became global uh, that the 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 worst um, Crises rooted in instability uh, were born in finance, uh, including the 2008 crisis, uh, and that's typical of an economy that's global, that's that, in which players operate at a very large scale, but that's uh, driven by network dynamics. Uh, it, 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 it's enough to have a you know small problem at the margin for it to propagate. Uh, uh, throughout the network and to turn into a very big problem that everyone has to deal with. That's typical of networked economies. Uh, So what happened in finance could very well happen now in every other industry if they all become networked and global. And so the fact that they in fact are are not that global, uh, that fragmentation is at work forcing companies to focus on a regional market or a national market It's a good thing in terms of instability. It prevents uh, the instability that's characteristic of global supply chains uh, in a networked economy, again. Uh, On the other hand, it will lead to less competition, which will contribute to reinforce the position of dominant players at the expense of the consumer's interest uh it, it, it's always been the trade off like if you want longer supply chains in the consumer goods industry uh it prevents uh sh- shortages and it it prevents inflation as well uh if you shorten the supply chain then you're not as dependent on you know some pandemic appearing in china but you become exposed to the risk of inflation because once Consumers, for any reason, decide to consume more of your product, your supply chain, if it's shorter, might not be able to follow up
1: that's exactly one of the points that uh, that I wanted to to raise and also, so this idea that uh, um, in this transition um, you know the question would be first of all uh, what new constituents do you see? Uh, becoming uh, the constituents of organizing. So, for example, talking about, I don't know, uh, citizens or governments uh, versus traditional corporations. And um, what are the impacts instead in the corporations that now are multinational corporations? And probably we need to, to some extent, adopt the organizational models that are radically different, that maybe scale differently differently, through the world, you know, and they, they tend to scale across instead of scaling up, instead of uh, bureaucratizing and industrializing. Uh, so the question would be, again, what are the new constituents that you see emerging and what are the new shapes, new organizational uh, shapes and the role that maybe entrepreneurship plays inside those organizations? Uh, so, for example, we, we're looking, we're working with this Chinese company called Hire that has this structure based on micro enterprises that are uh, pretty much, uh, you know, in a group of 80,000, they have 4,000 of them. Um, So do you see this as a pattern? What is the future essentially in your point of view of the the future shape of the corporation? And on the other hand, what new forms of organizing and new constituents might emerge in this uh, uh, transition towards a more uh, regionalized Uh, and diverse and different uh, world of entrepreneurship?
0: So, um, yes, good question, and there are several ideas that came to mind when you were asking it. Um, So the first idea is that, again, if you come back to the nature of today's economy, an economy that's driven by computing and networks, uh, the the law that you need to keep in mind if you want to understand everything that's happening around you is the following. There's now more power outside than inside organizations. That's the key to understanding everything. Uh, It explains the weakening of traditional top-down command and control uh, bureaucratic organizations. It explains the lack of trust that citizens express towards governments. It explains many things. And it's a radical change as compared to what existed in the 20th century. In the 20th century... Uh, power was concentrated within organizations and and the most powerful players in the world were the largest organizations and uh, chief executives were measuring their strength as compared to their um, counterparts in terms of how many employees um, employees do i have in, uh, under my authority and how, ma- how how many assets do do, do i have um, tied up uh, on my balance sheet Um, and and the more assets and the more employees you had the more powerful your organization was. But today uh, the situation is very different Uh, I think you you can build up as many employees and assets as you can you will still be weaker than the multitude of individuals connected through networks and so The corporations that will end up winning this game, it doesn't mean that corporations become irrelevant. It means that to succeed as a corporation, you need to realize that there's now more power on the outside, and you need to redeploy your organization so as to be able to harness that power from the outside. Which basically means inviting individuals to lend their power to you so that you can convert that power into whatever you want to achieve. That might be making profits or it might be operating a public service um, at scale or it might be winning an election. And so that's Google harnessing the power of all the users of its search engine or that's, um, I don't know, whatever government agency has realizes that citizens have more power and so redesigns the way they operate a public service based so as to funnel that power from individual citizens or it's barack obama uh, campaigning by relying on uh, millions of uh you know grassroots organization that that deploys their, their their own power to 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 bring him to the white house so Uh, In other words, you can win as an organization only if you realize that the power is on the outside and and if you restructure your operations so as to harness that power. Uh, That doesn't mean that your organization becomes empty. You still need things on the inside, if only because it makes you more resilient. Um, I think an organization that's brought down to almost nothing and that relies entirely on the power uh, that's on the outside uh, can scale up very fast but is also very fragile because uh, whenever there's a problem the organization will stumble Uh, all those individuals on the outside supporting the organization will leave in in an instant and the organization could disappear Uh, and so to Prepare for those episodes, later episodes where you, you could stumble as an organization. It's, but you're better off, you know, still having a few assets on the inside and a few employees on the inside, because if your users li- leave temporarily because of whatever, uh, you can rely on those on the inside to rebuild something. And so to, to attract users again so that they, they lend you their power again. So take the example of Uber. We I, I talked about Uber before to explain that they are now an entrenched company confronted with harsh competition on every market worldwide. And, and we don't even know if they will survive the coronavirus um, crisis. Uh, and the reason is that Uber has everything on the idea that they had to harness power from the from the outside Uh, the customers obviously the riders are on the outside they pay for the service but the the drivers are on the outside as well and the cars as well Uh, uh, uber doesn't employ the drivers it doesn't own the cars and so there's not much within the organization which means that when there's a problem when all those people leave in an instant because they decide they don't like Uber anymore, Well, Uber becomes weak to the point of being in danger of dying, uh, not being able to 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 return uh, to to generate the returns that their shareholders expect. Uh, whereas if they had done like Amazon, which is divide uh, well distribute resources between harnessing the power from the outside while still building up assets and a workforce on the inside. If you do both, well, you can scale up rather fast when things go well, and you can be uh, quite resilient when things go bad because you have assets and employees to fall back on. And so I think corporations in the future will realize that they need to reach that balance between you know uh, having resources on the inside but still um, harnessing the power uh, of individuals on the outside
2: yeah totally I uh, I was reflecting why while you were talking so it seems like there needs to be some core um, in the organization that is' able to work to attract the out- surrounding ecosystem let's say
0: mm. yes um,
2: so what do you think what what is needed for these employees or for these core insiders to to stick around?
0: Um, well i I, I think um, I think employees are simple people. they want stability, predictability. Um, they, they want two things basically the, uh, I have a friend, uh, Roy Berhat, uh, a managing partner of a venture fund called Bloomberg Beta and he 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 only invests in startups related to the future of work and as such he's very interested in what what work is about and what people expect from their experience as a worker and 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 so he's done a lot of focus groups and a lot of surveys and uh, a lot of um, town hall meetings with many many different constituencies to understand what's what, what do people expect from work? And it uh, it's fascinating because, as he says it, after having spoken with, I don't know, truck drivers, nurses, uh, restaurant waiters, um, factory workers, everyone expects two things from work. They expect some stability. like They want to be certain that they'll earn the same amount of money next month and next year because it makes it possible for them to plan ahead their life, to invest in a house, to buy a car, to have children, to grow a family. And if they have that basic layer that is stability, they want something else on top of that, which is dignity. And dignity is, well, basically what makes people proud of being a truck driver, a nurse, a factory worker, and so on. And, and dignity, as you see, is, is not the same as uh, earning a lot of money. You can earn not that much money, but have that feeling of dignity in your work because uh, what you do is rewarded by not only your manager, but your colleagues and your friends and your family and the different stakeholders that are around the, 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 the organization that employs you. And so and a, a a large a very important dimension of the crisis of the crisis that's currently going on in the world of work is that many people have stability without the dignity and some people have the dignity without the stability uh that we we've seen that during the pandemic with the so-called essential workers with everyone realizing that oh those people are very important but um, we all know that there's a dignity attached to being a nurse because you you actually save people, uh, save lives, uh, and and we we saw that even more during the pandemic. But those people don't have the stability because their working conditions are terrible and uh, um, and 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 they don't earn uh, that much money. So you you retain people by providing them with those two things: mm-hmm. uh, stability, dignity.
1: Okay, so my, my question would be more about um, I would say the impacts that uh, that um, that you see. Um, you, you know, you sp- you spoke about uh, you know uh, inside this in terms of your workers essentially, but uh, I'm thinking more about the entrepreneurs that are needed inside the, uh, the organization. So somebody that essentially could be uh, well uh, enterprising outside of the organization. Uh, and uh, uh, maybe the organization of the future wants to keep entrepreneurs inside. So, so the question would be: uh, How do you how do you craft an organization that uh, it's able to become the space for enterprising? What kind of support you you give to the entrepreneurs inside your organization uh, so that they uh, stay inside and feel like belonging to something bigger? Than just you know uh, creating, creating a startup. You are also pretty much an expert of the startup world, and uh, it seems like that what we are seeing now it's uh, this kind of clash, you know, between uh, a new world that wants to come up and, and the old world that that to some extent doesn't want to die. Uh, so so my question is really how does the industrial organization evolve in this process? How does it changes? Uh, how does it change to? fit with the new world that is emerging?
0: So uh, that's a good question, but a tough one. Um, w- when I speak about the the idea of the entrepreneurial age, it's not, uh, I, I, I always hear a lot of pushback on that idea because people expect that the entrepreneurial age de- uh, uh, describes uh, a society in which everyone is an entrepreneur. But in fact, the entrepreneurial age is not uh, a society in which everyone is an entrepreneur. It's it's a society in which organizations or businesses compete on their entrepreneurial capability. That is the ability to listen to customers, uh, to to make the most of the current state of technology, to improve the quality of the product, to make a lot of trials. Uh, uh, to be ready to fail many times, to learn from feedback loops and so on. So it's a mindset that can be widespread within a, 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 an organization. Uh, the entrepreneur is not, is not only the one at the helm of the organization. It can be everyone in the organization sharing that mindset and making the organization move forward uh, uh, in this entrepreneurial approach. Uh, with this entrepreneurial approach Uh, I think a key factor in making people more entrepreneurial within your organization is to connect them to the outside Uh, and and in fact it's actually very hard uh, because uh, well most organizations in the past have been designed under the principle that only the head speaks to the outside whereas everyone else uh, either does not interact with the outside at all or interacts only following a, a certain script which uh, deprives them from any spontaneity and and any ability to inspire trust like if you if you interact with the customer support uh, with, uh, with customer support uh, in a large bank, for instance, it's a human being that you are talking to over the phone, but you, y- what you feel is mistrust because you know that they're stuck, uh, within a script, within a playbook, and that they can't really solve your problem. They're forbidden to actually. And, 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 and the words they're using are read from a sheet of paper, uh, not what they they really want to tell you at the moment uh, so a big challenge for legacy organizations is to provide the freedom f- uh, for the employees to interact with the outside and to interact with the outside as themselves with their own words uh, uh, usually good words for the company and uh, align with the interests of the business but sometimes like you can have uh bad things happening because people will use the wrong words or make mistakes or speak ill of someone else or you don't know that there, there have been already so many accidents of you know employees uh, uh taking charge of interactions with the outside and making blunders so so, so I, I think that explains why, well, it's difficult when you're a legacy organization stuck with employees that have not been trained with that mindset, uh, and, uh, and rules and processes that have essentially so far prevented people from your employees from interacting with the outside. That's very hard to transform and to become more open and more sensitive and more sincere um, in in your interactions with the outside whereas if you're a new company that's been that's been built with that mindset from the onset then you can hire the right people uh, you can s- and encourage them to interact with uh, outside parties from the beginning and and you can learn from through uh, feedback loops from those many interactions that happen at every level of your organization between the inside and the outside and so you you can find many examples of tech startups that have been designed as such and that are stronger as a result but you can also find examples of uh, previously uh, uh, organizations that Previously were startups that have now become large tech companies, uh, listed on um, and bound by being a listed company uh, by so many rules that it becomes impossible for uh, for those organizations to interact with the outside. Look at Google, who who is going through a never-ending crisis uh, 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 triggered by the conflict between their values that, like the "Don't be evil." and the openness that they want to cultivate on the inside, and the fact that it has led so many employees to voice their anger toward the company on the outside, which has created a backlash and so on. And so they've been forced to clamp down on that and and to become more of a traditional organization, one that is so controlling and so closed that, well, they'll make uh, mistakes as a result because They'll become more cut off, less sensitive to the outside, and we um, that will destroy value.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But is there a synthesis that um, that you can see uh, between these? Um, the, you, you know, you use also this idea of Darwinian uh, economics, if I'm not wrong, uh, recently. And uh, is there a synthesis between this brutality that you mentioned and um, more? I would say um generative idea of organization uh you know it, it maybe is entrepreneurship this key that can be because because you know from what you said it looks like it looks like corporates have been created to compete and they don't know what anything else you know they don't, they're not they're not to do anything else and now that uh, uh suddenly the world uh, has changed and uh uh, the need for competing is uh, essentially as you said you know putting uh, uh, connecting everybody with the outside which on the other side means uh, putting the market inside the, the organization and and uh, wiping out uh, organizational debt and technical debt uh, and really uh, putting into the crisis the very idea of uh, you know the the, the even the, the, the institutional co- corporate as we know especially in in, in Europe uh, so so The question would be, is there some kind of way to transcend the idea of cooperation uh, through entrepreneurship and make it ready to to really become a generative player of the entrepreneurial age?
0: Well, um, I think, I'd say that I'm a realist. Um, So I'm 43 years old and so I'm making the jokes the joke uh, quite often these days that uh, it's only very recently after 43 years old, after after 43 years, that I finally understood what capitalism is about. And I understood that by reading a short text um, a few months ago by uh, Fernand Braudel, who's a famous French historian. Uh, and famous notably for having written a very long and uh, in depth uh, history of capitalism. And, um, and Brodel uh, quite unexpectedly makes the difference between two things that he demonstrates are very different. One is the market economy, and the other is capitalism. Uh, and so it, it's a bit disconcerting because we've all been used to, con- to confuse the two concepts like for us there's no capitalism without the without market and and the market is obviously dominated by capitalist organizations but in fact uh, those two worlds are very different the world of the market economy is the world of merchants that is i buy something and then i uh, I add a markup, and then I, 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 I sell uh, that thing for a slightly higher price, and, and the difference is mine, and, and, and that's it. And it's not very scalable because you never generate uh, margins high enough to be able to reinvest uh and, and and so you you only as good as uh, the quality of the relationship that you can entertain with your suppliers on one side and your customers on the other and and, and so uh, and that makes it very difficult to scale up uh, on the other side are the capitalists and the capitalists are those that realize that uh, that are obsessed, if you will, by the idea of scaling, because they, 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 um, w- what what they're doing so well at a small scale, they want to do at a larger scale. And for that, you need capital, and the capital uh, is uh, whether generated by your own profit or, or uh, raised from outside investors, makes it possible to invest in. Um, well in your company so as to escape the brutal competition that is happening in the market economy and to put the competition at a distance so as to be able to finally generate those increasing returns to scale Uh, and the fact is um, there's not a good side and a bad side. Like in the VC world, you have all those uh, discussions about the fact that, oh, maybe scaling up is not that important and raising VC money is not that important. And you, you should be content with having a small business that steady, that grows steadily without making too much noise and so on. That's perfectly fine. But if you do that, you're part of the market economy. If you want to build an empire, you switch sides and you become part of the, of the world of capitalism, which is a very different game. Uh, and it's a game that's about the pursuit of increasing returns to scale because those returns will make it possible for you to race ahead of the competition and to retain a part of the value you create so as to reinvest it or distribute it to someone else. And so the two are important because the market economy makes the economy vibrant and innovative because there's so much competition between people that try to uh, you know, lower the prices, improve the quality of the products. Um, it's widespread in the economy, but the capitalist uh, part of the economy is also very important because the, the increasing returns to scale that capitalists uh, generate uh, effectively form an economic surplus that explains economic development and the history of capitalism is also this the history of economic development that is all of us becoming richer having a better life uh, becoming healthier etc etc but again um, you would have the impression that uh, is it worth it if that surplus is retained by greedy shareholders and, you know, financial people and so on? But that's a different question. Like the fact that you need that surplus is one thing. And so uh, every, that's why most governments in the world try to support their capitalist uh, enterprises, uh, their local champions that try to, to play the game of capitalism. So that's one thing. You need that surplus. Uh, the other question is, how that surplus is redistributed at the scale of the, of, of the entire society. Part of it uh, 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 is used to pay wages to employees. Another part is used to improve the quality of the product for the benefit of customers. Another part is used to pay dividends to shareholders. Uh, another part is used to pay taxes to the government that can then invest in roads, schools, hospitals, and so on and so forth and so those are two very different questions you need a part of your economy to be about capitalism because that generates the surplus that contributes to economic development but then economic development happens if that surplus is used wisely distributed spread around society so as to create more jobs in service industries so as to support people in need so as to um, cover the cost of uh, expensive infrastructures and so on.
1: Mm-hmm. This resonates a lot, Nicola, with uh, with. Um uh, a few weeks ago, still on a picture, actually. I, I'm, I'm doing a lot of uh, advertising for that podcast, and the, our friends will be enthusiastic about it. But uh, I've listened to Rita McGrath. She said, you know, uh, we need a new social compact. And, and to some extent, you know, your, your thesis is really that. You know, if, we, if we are to continue with this idea of uh, technological development and uh, innovation and entrepreneurship, then we also need the social contract because otherwise it doesn't really work anymore. And uh, I totally, I think I tend to agree with this uh, as a closing consideration.
0: Yes, and by the way, uh, in the 20th century during Carlota Perez's age of the automobile and mass production, the ultimate capitalists were the car manufacturers. And this is why the social contract at the time was modeled after how those, or, those organized capitalist enterprises were creating value and employing people, factory workers. But now uh, the ultimate game of capitalism is played by tech companies. And so we need to revisit the social contract to adapt it, to upgrade it, so as to fit this new way of doing capitalism in a very different age.
1: Mm-mm, definitely. Definitely. That's I, I think a very good uh, point and uh, ending note for our conversation. Uh, Nicola, one thing. Uh, anything else that uh, you believe is really really important to share with our, our audience that that we didn't mention?
0: Well, uh, maybe just in conclusion, I think uh, one of the message I, I I try to stress is that the world is fragmenting at at an accelerated pace, which means that. Europe will soon be on their uh, will soon be on our own, uh, as opposed to forming that Western bloc with the U.S. And so it's both a threat because we're not sure we're we're going to survive that, you know, being cut off from the U.S. and the security that being bringing uh, to us. But it's also an opportunity to well to, to to push our local ecosystems and to build our own capitalist. You know uh, empires and to generate that surplus that will make it possible for Europe to remain among the most advanced and developed regions in the world.
1: Very good point. Um, Nicola where, where, where can our uh, listeners find your work and uh, stay on top of uh, your um, your writings and, and, and contributions? Sure. so if you want the live version, you
0: can uh, simply follow me on Twitter, which I use a lot. Uh, if you want more, you can subscribe to my newsletter called European Straits. Uh, in which case, if you sign up, you'll receive at least one essay a week. And if you subscribe to the paid version, you'll receive even more, and uh, uh, especially my work on corporate strategy, finance, entrepreneurship in Europe, and policy.
1: Thank you, Nicola. I think you 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 really your 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 work it's really you in, a, in a, this sweet spot, you know, between technology, entrepreneurship, and policy uh, that is going to be the, the battlefield, let's say, for the future of organizing. And so, I really recommend uh, all the people that are interested in becoming protagonists in in the future to really follow your work uh, closely. Uh, it was a great pleasure to have you. Uh, we are really really thankful, and I'm sure I'm going to really listen to the podcast and. Uh, you know, isolate so many insights that we're going to share with our listeners. So, thanks very much for, for being with us. Uh, it was a great, great pleasure.
0: Thanks to both of you.
2: Yeah, thanks, Nicola.
1: Thank you for listening to Boundaryless Conversation Podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to our podcast by looking up for Boundaryless Conversation Podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for more general research updates, where you can also find opportunities for learning and free tools for you and your team to design platform strategies in these turbulent times. This podcast has been brought to you by our research sponsor, Intesa San Paolo. We want to also thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.